0: Good morning. This has just been mentioned. We're continuing this morning with our series on Highway 27, which is taking us one book at a time through the 27 books of the New Testament. And a decision was made at the beginning of this series to take the four Gospels and to put them at intervals through the series. And tonight we come to one of those Gospels, which is the Gospel of Luke. Now, together with Matthew and Mark, Luke, the three of them together, have come to be known as the Synoptic Gospels. And the reason that they have this name is simply because they share a lot of common material with one another. And so I figured since we'd already had a sermon on Matthew and on Mark, that a sermon on Luke was going to be redundant. So I may as well sit down and we'll just continue singing. Well, you should be so lucky, right? In actual fact, it's true that there is a lot of common material between them, but it's equally true that each one of the Gospels is quite distinctive and quite unique in and of itself in terms of the emphasis that it brings to what it has to say about the person of Jesus. For one thing, Luke is unique in that he is likely the only Gentile writer in the New Testament. Luke is also unique in that it's the longest of the Gospels and in fact is the longest book in the New Testament. And so it's no surprise that in the Gospel of Luke, you end up having quite a lot of material that is unique to Luke and is not found in Matthew or Mark. It's also true that where you do have overlap material, it's often presented in quite a unique way to bring out a unique distinctive. Luke is also unique in the fact that he's the only one of any of the Gospel writers to have written his work as part of a two-volume series where the book of Acts is intended to follow the Gospel of Luke. And I want to just point out a couple of points of continuity between these two books, which is important to understand because I think it's equally, if not more important, to understand Luke alongside the book of Acts as it is to understand Luke alongside the other Gospels. (coughs) In the first place, there's historical continuity between them in the sense that the story in the Gospel of Luke continues on in the book of Acts, so that where Luke ends up, Acts picks right up and continues on, so that they form together one long, continuous story. At the same time, there is also theological or thematic continuity between these books. Now, we've already had our sermon on the book of Acts, and perhaps it should have come next week, but it came earlier in the series. And a statement was made at that time, and this was a statement summarizing the content of the book of Acts. And it was said... The Acts is about a sovereign God spreading his kingdom through ordinary people, filled with the Holy Spirit and totally dependent on him through sustained individual and corporate prayer. In other words, three key things in the book of Acts is a sovereign God spreading his kingdom, the Holy Spirit and prayer. Now, the Holy Spirit and prayer I'm going to pick up on a little bit later, but I want to mention a couple of things about a sovereign God spreading his kingdom. As one theologian has described the work of Luke in terms of gospel and Acts, he has called it a salvation history. In other words, these two books together talk about what God has done in history in order to bring salvation to people, both through the life of Jesus and through the church. So the, the book of Acts deals with what God is doing in and through the church. And the Gospel of Luke gives really what is the foundation without which acts wouldn't be possible, which is what God accomplished in and through the person of Jesus Christ. And so a central verse in the Gospel of Luke is chapter 19, verse 10, which says the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So saving and salvation is a central theme that runs its way all the way through this two-volume work. Now, Luke is also unique in one other respect, with respect to the the other two synoptic gospels, in that he's the only one to have written a prologue, that is, an introduction. In the first four verses, he tells us who he's writing to and why he's writing. And amongst other things, he says that he has carefully investigated his sources in order to put his account together, and that he has then gone about writing an orderly account. Now, we tend to immediately think in terms of precision of chronology, but that's not necessarily the, the top priority that was going on in Luke's mind, but rather... His concern was to not only write the account, but to draw out the significance of the life of Jesus and the events of his life. And so what we're going to do for the rest of the sermon this morning is first of all take a look at how did he order his account and how did he put it together and structure it, but then a larger portion of time will be spent to talking about what are some of the points of significance that Luke wants to emphasize in terms of Jesus' life and his message. In terms of an outline of the book, there's various ways you can divide up the Gospel of Luke, and it's not an easy Gospel to divide up. But what I've done is to put it into four major sections. And the first section deals with what I've called introductory material. And the first part of that is a prologue, which I just mentioned to you. Then you go into the birth narratives, and the birth narratives basically is the events surrounding the birth of both John the Baptist and Jesus. You then jump forward about 30 years And you come to Jesus' preparation for ministry. And this begins with John the Baptist in the desert preaching. Jesus comes to him and is baptized. Then Luke gives the the ancestry or the genealogy of Jesus. And then finally you have Jesus' temptation in the desert. All of this prepares a way for the next major section, which is Jesus' ministry in Galilee. Galilee. First off, you have that Jesus' ministry is described as a fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah, which is a prophecy that we had read for us just a little while ago. You then have various examples of what that ministry looks like, which clearly indicates that this is a fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah. You have Jesus' initial call of disciples and his initial teaching to them. And then you also have the beginnings of resistance, because Jesus um, encounters a fair bit of resistance and engages in a lot of controversy, particularly with the religious leaders. And you see this starting to come out in this first section. And then finally, you have a continued revelation of Jesus' identity, both as prophet, as son of God, and in in various ways. Now, in about chapter 9, verse 51, there is a very sharp turn in the gospel where it says that as the time came near for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus set his face resolutely toward Jerusalem. In other words, there was this very distinct movement and six times over in the next 10 chapters, you have this repeated phrase that he continued in his journey toward Jerusalem. And again, there's a very strong sense of divine destiny involved in this, which is part of the salvation history. There's no accident that Jesus is going to Jerusalem. This is where he's destined to go to. And of course, he knows that Jerusalem is a place of suffering and he predicts the passion, his own passion and his own suffering that's going to take place in Jerusalem is predicted several times during this. And it's also a time of just increasing resistance to Jesus' ministry and increasing hostility, increasing hatred, which comes to its climax in Jerusalem. And so in one sense, Jesus is taking the path of greatest resistance in his deliberate choice to journey toward Jerusalem. But of course, for those who decide to follow after Jesus, this is not only a path for Jesus, it's a path for those who follow him as well, because also in this section, Jesus reveals his program for discipleship for those who are going to follow him. And not only does he model that in terms of his own life as a life to be followed, but he gives much instruction about discipleship during these sections. Finally, we get to the climax of the gospel, which takes place in Jerusalem, and Jerusalem is sort of a central climax to Luke's two-volume work in a sense because everything in the Gospel moves towards the climax in Jerusalem and then everything in the book of Acts, you may recall, moves out from Jerusalem and, and the Gospel is taken out to the whole of the Roman Empire and to the world. In Jerusalem itself, we, again, follows in, falls into sort of three phases. First is Jesus' ministry in Jerusalem. He enters Jerusalem. He clears out the temple. This sparks a whole lot of controversy and so he gets into some major confrontations with the religious leaders and he gives his final set of instructions to his disciples in terms of persevering in their faith. This leads the way into what comes next, which is the passion and the passion, of course, for those of you who have seen the movie, Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion of the Christ. I haven't seen it, but from what I understand, this is the events that are recorded in that movie and portrayed in that movie. And this is, in essence, It's Jesus, in his last supper with his disciples, he then goes to Gethsemane, he prays, he is arrested, he's taken, he goes through various trials, he's eventually sentenced to death, he's put on a cross, he's crucified, and then he dies and he is buried. That's the passion. And then the very last chapter is the, the victory chapter, the climax of the Gospel of Luke, which is the resurrection chapter. And here we have women discovering an empty tomb. We have Jesus appearing to a couple of disciples who are walking their way to a small town called Emmaus. And then finally, he appears to the rest of the disciples and he gives them instructions about their going out now and proclaiming the good news of what they have seen and experienced. And that, of course, paves the way then for everything that happens in the book of Acts, which follows. Okay, that gives you a sense of the sort of broad picture or big overview, bird's-eye view of the Gospel of Luke. What I want to do now is to take a look at two points of significance. I've sort of divided up into two major points. The first has to do with the identity of Jesus, and the second has to do with our response in terms of being disciples of Jesus who are going to follow him. This is where we come to our slide for the week. This is obviously a doctor on the left hand side and what's he doing he's looking so it's obviously Dr. Luke because he's looking <laughs> and what he's looking at is he's looking at a man and the man is being judged by a, a bunch of other people and they've all given him 10 out of 10 so obviously he's a perfect man so hence you have the gospel of Luke where it is about Jesus the perfect man. Now, it's true that Jesus presented this perfect man in the Gospel of Luke, and this may well be a distinctive feature of the Gospel of Luke. It's also true that that the presentation of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke or any of the Gospels is multifaceted and quite complex. And as I was reading through the Gospel for myself and preparing for this, I was struck by quite a different aspect of Jesus in this Gospel, and that's the one that I want to pick up on today. And that has to do with Jesus the prophet. You see, not only was Jesus' ministry, something that was a fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah, but Jesus himself is depicted as a prophet. First of all, we're told that he declares the word of God, which is essentially a definition of a prophet. Secondly, he himself defines his own ministry in, in relationship to Elijah and Elisha, who were two great Old Testament prophets. Thirdly, many of the questions and the discussions about Jesus, be it Herod, be it the two men on the road to Emmaus, Often they center around the question of Jesus' identity as a prophet. And then fourthly, Jesus announces woes. Now, if good news or gospel is an announcement of good news, then a woe is an announcement of bad news. But a woe is a technical Old Testament term for something that is a prophetic woe. Hence, a woe is bad news that is delivered by a prophet. So what is the significance or what, why would Luke want to emphasize Jesus' identity as a prophet? Well, there may be a variety of different reasons, but I want to take a look at just two. And the first one has to do with this going back again to this aspect of salvation history. And the fact that Luke is concerned to see salvation history not simply in terms of what takes place in the first century, but in terms of what takes place over all of time. And so Jesus the prophet immediately connects him to what has gone on in the past. So that not only is he a fulfillment of what God has said in the past, But he himself is one more prophet in a long line of prophets that God has sent, hence showing that what God is doing in Jesus now is totally continuous with what God has been doing for centuries before. So that Jesus is not some departure from God's plan. Jesus is part of God's plan that is continuous for centuries And of course, we heard in the sermon on the book of Acts, that Acts finishes as an unfinished story, which therefore projects salvation history forward. So that salvation history not only is continuous with the past, but continues on into the future, right into our present day with Jesus sort of standing at the center of that. So that may be one potential reason why Jesus is highlighted as a prophet. The second one has to do with our response to Jesus. In terms of being disciples of Jesus. The most appropriate response probably that anybody can have to prophet of God is to listen to them. And so probably the first and foremost appropriate response for us is to listen to Jesus. And this, of course, is what God the Father says about Jesus at his transfiguration when he sees Jesus. And he first makes a statement about his identity and says... This is my son, whom I have chosen. But then makes a second statement, and only one in terms of what is our response. He says, listen to him. So the first and most appropriate response for us to Jesus is to give him our attention. Now, of course, being a disciple of Jesus involves more than simply listening and giving our attention. And so another important aspect of being a disciple that comes up in the Gospel of Luke is that of repentance. Now, repentance in New Testament terms, essentially has to do with changing our mind about something because we think this particular way, we receive a message from God, so we have to change how we think about things. Now, not only does it involve changing how we think, but in New Testament terms, repentance involves a change of action and a change of lifestyle that goes beyond simply changing what we think. In order to illustrate this, I want to take two examples out of the Gospel of Luke. The first one is from chapter 18, And this is a story of the rich young ruler, and this is a negative example, but he comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And so Jesus says to him, well, obey all the commandments and you'll be just fine. So he says, well, I've done that ever since I was a kid. Jesus says, well, one more thing. You actually, you need to sell all your possessions and then give it away to the poor. He says, okay, well, that sounds great. Obviously, I missed something and off he goes to sell his possessions. Well, actually, if you read the story, that's not how it ends. It's not true. What happens is it says he went away sad because he was very wealthy. He wasn't willing to go away and follow through on what Jesus asked him to do. <clears throat> now, lest we think that that means rich people can't get into the kingdom of heaven. In the very next chapter, chapter 19, we get an opposite example, which is the example of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is also rich because he's, uh, he, he was a chief tax collector and we're told that he was rich and as a chief tax collector, is probably despised as well, which is, I think, perhaps how we feel about tax collectors today. But Zacchaeus comes, he wants to listen to Jesus, but he's a short person, so he can't get to see Jesus. So he goes and he climbs up a tree. And, of course, Jesus sees him on the way past and says, Zacchaeus, I'm going to come to your house today for dinner. So Zacchaeus comes down and Jesus goes to his home, and halfway through the meal, Zacchaeus gets up and says, today I've decided that half of my wealth I'm going to give away to the poor. And then if I've cheated anybody, I'm going to pay them back four times over. In other words, what the rich young ruler was unwilling to do, he was willing to come and listen, but he wasn't willing to change his priorities. Zacchaeus was not only willing to come and listen, but he decided he was going to change his priorities and change how he was going to live out his life. Now, of course, this kind of repentance requires something called self-denial, which is a key ingredient to the life of repentance. And so it's no surprise that immediately before chapter 9, verse 51, which is where Jesus says he he sets his face resolutely toward Jerusalem, right before that, he gives a little sermon on self-denial. And then immediately after that, he gives a little sermon on the cost of discipleship. So that obviously cost and self-denial is a key part of being a disciple of Jesus, Now, self-denial as a lifestyle is not exactly easy and doesn't appeal to to many, if not any of us. And we face many temptations and distractions that can take us off that kind of a path. And so that raises the question, what is it that sustains us in a life of self-denial and a life of discipleship? In the first place, I think there is the promise of reward, because in the Gospels, self-denial is never self-denial for self-denial's sake, but it's always the sake of giving something up that is lesser in order to gain something that is greater. And so right after this little encounter with the rich young ruler, there's a discussion that takes place between Jesus and his disciples, in which they're talking about rich people entering the kingdom of God and this kind of thing. And Peter makes a statement that says, we've given up, we've left everything in order to follow you, Jesus. And... Jesus' response to that is, whatever you've given up, everybody who's given up anything in order to follow me and for the sake of the kingdom will not only receive back many, many more times in this life, but also in a life to come, eternal life. So that, that whatever we give up to follow Jesus and deny ourselves, there's always something that we get paid back that is greater. Now, the question is... Is a promise of reward enough to sustain us in the journey, and we might say yes, we might say no. Certainly it helps, but I think there's something more, and that's where it brings us back to the big picture of the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. And these three themes of God is sovereign, the Holy Spirit, and prayer. First, if God is sovereign, then God is in control, so that what is happening in terms of bringing salvation to people and making disciples is ultimately the work of God. So that it does not ultimately depend on me and you. It ultimately depends on what God is accomplishing. That obviously is an important point in terms of sustaining us. Secondly, in order to do that, God not only promises reward, but he also provides his Holy Spirit to enable those of us to follow Jesus. And so it's no surprise that Jesus himself was a model of somebody who was filled with the Holy Spirit. He was conceived In the Holy Spirit, he was baptized in the Holy Spirit. It was the Holy Spirit who sent him out into the desert in order to be tempted. And then, as we read in the scripture earlier, he came back and entered Galilee full of the Holy Spirit. And of course, his very first sermon out of Isaiah is the spirit of the Lord is upon me. So Jesus was somebody who obviously needed to be filled with the Holy Spirit in order to accomplish what he accomplished in his life. So if he needed it, then how much more do we need it? Now, this may make it sound like we're sort of just passive agents in the process, but that couldn't be further from the truth because we have an active role to play. And one very important part of that active role is to have a life of prayer. And again, Jesus is depicted as a person of prayer. We're told that he prayed often and indeed he prayed at his baptism. He prayed before choosing his disciples. He prayed before having discussions with them about his identity. He prayed at the Mount of Transfiguration. He prayed in Gethsemane, and of course he prayed on the cross. And so Jesus was a person of prayer. And these last two are very explicitly linked by Jesus, because not only was he a person of prayer, but in terms of his instructions to his disciples, he spoke more about prayer during this particular gospel than he did certainly in Matthew and Mark. And on one particular point he says if your earthly fathers know how to give good gifts to their children, how much more will the heavenly father give the gift of the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So that there's an explicit link between our life of prayer and our receiving of the Holy Spirit and of those things which help to sustain us in the journey that we're on. So a life of a disciple is made possible not only by The promise of reward, but also by the fact that God is in control, that he's provided his Holy Spirit and that through a life of prayer, we can access what God has made available for us. And so this, in a very brief nutshell, is what is involved in this key verse of Luke, that the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Now, I recognize there's a lot of information up there. And what I want to do in this last part is just to give you a couple of illustrations that I can't illustrate all of this because it would take too much, but I want to give a couple of illustrations that will help to hopefully sort of bring this a little bit into context in terms of what it might, some ways in which this this might look like in contemporary uh, life. And the first illustration is out of my own life and... My own journey, which I first encountered Jesus, the prophet during the late 1980s, and I subsequently became a disciple of Jesus beginning in approximately the summer of 1990. Immediately after that, I came here to Canada, started attending this church, got involved in some different ministries. And as you heard earlier, I started attending Tyndale Seminary back in 1993, and 11 years later, in April of this year, eventually graduated with my Master of Divinity, and as if I hadn't had enough study, going on to start studying again in September, and all of which will hopefully lead to a point where at least one thing I'd like to be able to get to the point of doing is to be able to teach a New Testament somewhere. Now, all of that can sound quite exciting, at least to some some of you it may sound dreadful, but (laughs) to others... (laughs) Certainly, to me, it's, it's quite exciting, and I'm, I'm excited to be on this particular journey. But at the same time, it's not always been an easy journey, and there has been, there has been cost and denial in that journey for me too. That's been part of the process, and so I want to just talk a little bit about that. First, in terms of finances, you see, when Sheila and I, Sheila, my wife, and I got married several years ago, we first sat down and we looked at our budget, and we said, well, between her income and my income, we didn't have enough money. To meet what was our outgoing expenses. Well, we moved ahead and we got married anyway. That wasn't going to stop us, but we never went into debt and God seemed to provide. And in fact, within a year or two, Sheila had quit her job. And then another year or two later, I'd gone down to 40 percent or sorry, 80 percent salary so that I could go back to school one day a week. And then three years ago, I was challenged to quit my job altogether and go back to school full-time. I thought, okay, well, I'll do that. So I did it. And of course, coming in September, I'm going to be continuing on in school full-time. Now, though those were not always easy decisions. And in particular, the one that was made three years ago to say, I'm going to quit my job. And for, for me, you know, I'm a person who likes to have a certain amount of stability and predictability in my life. And so to say I'm going to quit my full-time job, quit full-time salary, quit having benefits for my young and -and up-and-coming family and myself was not exactly an easy decision. That was a cost decision to say I'm going to let this go where this is stable and predictable in order to go over here where this is not particularly stable and predictable because I'm not even sure where it's going. Now, aside from the financial aspects, that's one aspect of it, there's another side which has to do with just my own personal dreams and ambitions, which is this part of me that ever since I was a kid, I thought I would always love to live by the seaside. Just something that I would love. to. I love going to visit the seaside. Of course, my family is in the UK and we went to visit them recently and they happen to live by the seaside. So, of course, this rekindles this all over again for me to say, I would love to live in a place like this. And yet in reality, when I look at the various circumstances of my life for a whole host of different reasons, I look at that and I think it is just not likely going to work out that way for me. And in particular, and certainly part of it, it's not all of it, but certainly part of it is because this is the path that I am choosing, because this is what I believe God is calling me to do, that says likely means going to give up something over here in terms of this particular dream. Now, this may sound like gloom and doom, or perhaps it makes me sound like some kind of hero of the faith, neither of which is at all true. In the first place, it's not gloom and doom, because, yes, there may have been self-denial, but at the same time, there's been incredible blessing from having chosen this particular path. Because, yes, I gave up full-time salary and all this kind of stuff, but then over here, I can now look back and see how God has provided totally faithfully for my family during the last few years and know that we have not gone without a single material need being met in our lives over the last three years, which is part of what gives me confidence even to move ahead with the next stage of the journey because, you know, things are even more uncertain in terms of where finances would come from. Also, I'm no hero of the faith, you know, and you only need to talk to my wife to find out over the last few years My faith journey and how it's been an incredible struggle for me the last few years and my faith has been really challenged I've had struggles with doubt and I've come this far to just simply giving up and walking away from my faith And yet the irony is that in choosing this particular path It has been through this process that even seeing God's provision for me has been part of the fuel for my faith That has has refueled me and re-energized me in terms of faith And so as I look back on the last few years, what I can say to you is, is, you know, this is not a testimony to my faithfulness to God, but this is a testimony of God's faithfulness to me in terms of his provision for me. My second illustration comes from something that is totally different, which is something that God is doing right here in Rexdale at this point of time. Um, Another key theme that comes up in the Gospel of Luke is the whole aspect of people who are on the margins of society. And we had the scripture read for us earlier, and I'm just going to read a little bit of it again from Luke 4.18, where it says that the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, all of these people groups are all people that are on the margins of society. And I don't have time to take you through the whole gospel in terms of the various points where this comes up, but this is a major theme throughout the gospel of Luke. Now, even in those two stories of Zacchaeus and the rich young ruler, in both instances, it was a case of giving to the poor. So that poor and oppressed and people on the margins of society are a a major concern. And if they're a concern to Jesus, then it's saying this is a concern to God, that these people are on the heart of God. Now, there's multiple different ways in which we can minister to poor, and that can happen in in a variety of ways. But one specific way that it's happening in Rexdale right now is through NeighborLink Ministries. Now, this is a ministry that was started by World Vision, back in 1990, when they looked at what they were doing overseas and decided that they wanted to do something locally to meet needs of people within Canada. So they started making partnerships with local churches, and those local churches would partner up with other churches in their area so that they could all combine their efforts within a particular geographical location in order to meet the needs of people in that location. And so Rexdale is one such church that has started that ministry under the leadership of Don Delov where this is a center for Naval Link Ministries in this area, connecting up with various churches in this area. Now, it's no accident that Naval Link Ministries would start here at Rexdale because just within the last few years, we've had a 40th anniversary celebration here at Rexdale where there was three separate individuals who got up and shared a passage of scripture, totally unknown to each other, but happened to be exactly the same passage of scripture. And that passage of scripture is the same one we've had read for us today, which is... The gospel of Luke chapter four, where the spirit of the Lord is upon me in order to preach good news to the poor. And so obviously, neighbor ministries is a very direct response to that very specific prophetic challenge, which came out of Luke chapter four. And so. An appropriate response to the gospel of Luke and to this kind of message is to recognize, first of all, well, this is a word that specifically comes from Jesus. It's a specific prophetic word to us as a congregation that we need to pay attention and listen to. And a response for us may well be a response of repentance because, and I speak to myself as much as I speak to anybody because I'm not involved in neighbor link ministries in any way, but to say we may need to change some of our priorities, if our priorities are not making space for NeighborLink or something equivalent, we may need to change that, which is what repentance is all about. And that may involve a, a self-denial for us to say, well, we're going to take something from over here in our full and busy calendars and we're going to put it over here. Whether it's our time, whether it's our energy, talents, resources, finances, whatever it is. And I'm sure, you know, you can connect with or contact with neighbor link, and I'm sure you'll be able to find out uh, more about how you could get could help out in that particular ministry. And, of course, in all of this, whether, you know, it was my particular journey had to do with finances, you know, oftentimes ministry to the poor often has to do with resources and finances as well. And we just heard last week that, um, you know, in the sermon on First Timothy, that one of the chief competitors to hope in God was this issue of finances. So that, again, finances is very often tied into this whole aspect of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus and to repent Okay, let me just finish with giving a few suggestions in terms of some possible next steps. There's all kinds of possible next steps that you could take, but here's, uh, here's some of, just a couple of suggestions for myself. First one is to read and to pray. If listening to Jesus is important and praying to Jesus is important, then reading and praying is obviously important. And one way you can do that is you could take any one of these books of the New Testament that we're working through in a series right now, and you could sit down and read it for yourself. You know, after Sheila, my wife, after she heard the Sermon on Romans, she decided that she was going to sit down with the book of Romans and steadily work her way through it in order to do her own outline and do her own interaction with the book. And in so doing, and I know she's already started that process, is getting a whole lot more out of that particular book that is fueling her relationship with God. So one very clear way you could respond to this is to say, I'm going to sit down with one of the New Testament books and work my way through it. I wouldn't necessarily, if you haven't done it before, I wouldn't necessarily suggest starting with Luke because Luke's fairly long. But you could certainly start with one of the shorter books in the New Testament. In terms of praying, another way you can get involved in praying is there's all kinds of prayer ministries that take place in this church. Corporate prayer meetings and coming up in the month of September is an increased focus on that. And so if you're not involved in any of the corporate prayer meetings, that may be something that you want to consider as a next step, because not only is that engaging in the act of prayer, but when you go to a corporate prayer meeting, you're around other people who pray on a regular basis, and it's a place where you learn about how to pray, too. Another specific action step is obviously getting involved in ministry to the poor. And again, that can happen in a variety of ways. It could be the offering plates that give to the Benevolent Fund every month, which is designed specifically to meet the physical, material needs of people in the congregation. Or it could be the neighbor link that I've already mentioned, or it could be some other thing. Lastly, I want to address one just last group of people. Because it's very easy in sermons to just simply stand up and give exhortations to do this, do that, you know, pray, give, go, etc., etc., etc. And all of that is important and relevant and is totally appropriate in a sermon. But the other side of that is the fact that unless we have first received something for ourselves, then we don't have anything to give. You know, it's true that it says in the Gospels that those who have received much, much will be expected from them. But the first... Part of that is that they have actually received something. If they haven't received anything, then they don't have anything to give away. And so whether you, perhaps you've never had an encounter with Jesus and you've never received anything from Jesus. And so this may be an appropriate thing for you. And maybe you're a disciple who's been a disciple for a long time, but you're at a point in your life where you are empty and you are dry and you need to receive from Jesus. You know, it says the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. He didn't come to seek and save those who were already found and filled. He came to seek and save those who were lost and were empty and in need. And so our very first point of connection with Jesus is our point of need. And so maybe tonight you come as somebody who needs, first and foremost, to receive from Jesus before you can go out and give anything. And so the worship team is going to come up and lead us in our last couple of songs. But after that, I'm going to be giving a benediction and that benediction is going to be specifically directed towards those of you who fit into that kind of category as somebody who needs to receive from Jesus. And so I would invite you, I mean, you can stay in your chair. I would invite any of you who have any desire, if you want to come to the front, to kneel, to stand, to whatever, or happily have you stay in your seat. But my benediction is going to be specifically directed towards you in terms of what you have to receive from God today. In terms of my benediction, there's was, there was one other theme that I didn't, didn't get into in the Gospel of Luke, and that is the theme of joy. And joy comes up in, in various different places, but in particular it comes up in the birth narratives. And so I want to just read a short portion out of the birth narratives. This is where the angel Gabriel comes to Mary and announces to her that she's going to have a child. And of course she says, well, how can this be possible because I'm a virgin? And so the angel Gabriel says... The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, who is said to be, she who is said to be barren in her sixth month. For nothing is impossible with God. You see, joy comes up as a constant theme around the birth of Jesus and John the Baptist, And joy, of course, is where the gospel concludes because it says after Jesus ascended, the disciples were praising God with joy in the temple. And joy comes up at other points in the gospel, too. And so my benediction for you is that the Holy Spirit of God will overshadow you to bring new birth in your places of life where you have barrenness so that he will bring joy into your sadness, that he will bring life into into your death, so that your discipleship as a disciple of Jesus will be totally rooted in the joy of having first received from God and not rooted in some kind of guilt about what you have to measure up to. And so may you go forth in the joy of the Lord Jesus Christ.